What is up, everybody? Back with another audio. Back with another banger. John McGee is looking at me very disappointedly. So, Alex, we're supposed to be a Chicago podcast. You don't think people from the British Isles can have a Chicago podcast? Do people from the British Isles have British accents? No, I don't think so. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's 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 get into it, folks. I'm very excited about today's episode. We are joined by Chris Bedial. Hello, Chris. Hello, Alex. Hello, John. Hey, you know, thanks hey. for having me. You know, when I, when I daydreamed about this podcast, I envisioned Chris sitting mm-hmm. right here, right next to us. Mm-hmm. So this is an exciting day. I'm very much looking forward to it. John, can you mm-hmm. introduce our guest, please? Yeah, I would love to, Alex. Thank you so much. So Chris is actually probably one of my first Chicago friends. One of our first Chicago friends, Alex. You have Chicago friends, John? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what the uh, purpose of this podcast is? We're just trying to prove to ourselves that we have friends. Um, anyways, um, yes. Yeah, so I thought we uh, said no monologues. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, oh, we are off to gosh. a great start today. It is it is a wonderful Wednesday evening. Mm. And with this one, Wednesday day. evening, we have our good friend Chris here. Chris, um, you're from Texas A&M, class of 2019. Yep. Born, born on campus as born well. Born on campus. <laughs> I'm from Texas A&M. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just uh, uh, A&M baby. Yep. Exactly. Delivered on the football field after a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Chris, you are a operations management consultant out of the healthcare transformation practice at PwC. That's right. That is sounds amazing. Helping mm-hmm. helping save lives. You're basically mm-hmm. a doctor. Uh, that's a stretch. I think any md would very much look down on this conversation but random talents you said you don't have any random talents why is that yeah Chris. well i mean so who's defining a, a random talent is it something that is uncommon is it so if you had to perform for a talent show oh okay our talent show actually oh, we are hosts our own talent show your here. talent yeah. show mm-hmm. I what would, would your talent be i'm just kidding i can't yodel um, I would say I've done that in other um, talent shows-ish, not actually talent shows, more like fraternity pledging talent <laughs> shows. <laughs> we, would, we would recreate the fraternity pledging environment just for you <coughs> okay, in that talent show. Yeah, and one other thing about you, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, is that you are engaged. Not married. Not married. Very important. Uh, so close, but yet so far. Are you trying to imply, Chris, that you still have time to escape from this this nuptial agreement? No, I'm trying to imply that I have 270 days to convince Anna that she's not making a bad decision. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Well, I'm sure it won't be a hard decision because you are quite charming and mm-hmm. quite good looking. So... If it wasn't obvious for everyone listening to the podcast. That's right. If you can't hear his voice and it doesn't just reek sexiness, then then you're not listening hard enough. So Texas A&M, and honestly, Texas Mm -hmm. in general, you've lived in Texas for a large majority of your life, to my understanding, and Mm -hmm. you're very proud of that. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about Texas for those who have never been. Actually, I I want to kind of double click into that because you didn't list Texas as your hometown. Yeah. What type of proud Texas native are you if you don't list Texas as your hometown? It depends on what you mean by hometown. Um, I was born and lived for the first year, eight years of my life in Oneonta, New York, um, and moved to College Station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M is in 2004. 
lived there for 15 years before moving to the great city of Chicago. So Texas, would you classify it as your home or would you classify New York as your home? That's a good question. I, and, and probably one that, uh, delineates me from most Texans is I never felt like Texas was really home to me growing up. So I didn't love the climate culturally. It didn't feel like, um, as much of a fit at the end of the day. Um, Which I, I'm going to interject here and say that's wild because I just feel like he, when I met you, I was like, Oh yeah, Chris is from Texas. He's a Texas yeah. boy. Oh, that's so interesting. See, I own a pair of cowboy boots, um, but I don't wear them. I haven't worn them in a long time. Um, I've got many friends that are far more Texan than me, <clears throat> but actually most people, when they do meet me, uh, they may they may pick up that I'm from Texas from Southern hospitality, but not from an accent or any other Southernisms. So what other is it than about, saying y'all maybe, what is it about Texas that you, you feel like doesn't resonate with you? I mean, mm. there's, there's people that love the state to death. Oh yeah. For so many reasons. I mean, could you give us just like a brief synopsis please <laughs> of some of the things that you think people love about Texas oh, and yeah. then some potential, you know, downsides of Texas, things that aren't so great about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would maybe put it as like, um, some of the things that, you know, people love about Texas and then some of the things that um, I don't have a preference towards but can still be good to other people. Um, so some of the things that people love about Texas is Texans are n- notoriously very kind. They have open doors. Um, they, um, yeah, they have a strong sense of community in their cities, um, a strong sense of stability. So most people that... Um, go to school will probably end up moving to cities that are near their hometown. Um, that way they can be very close to family. So the family unit's very strong in Texas. Um, as for the things that I, I feel like I don't prefer, um, I feel like Texas, um, in my experience, having um, lived there for a while and interning in different cities, it just felt like a a pretty slow environment. Um, and it also, everything felt very spread out and, um, as much, uh, as there was this bend towards community, um, everyone does have these incredibly like tall fences in their backyards and everyone has a lot of space. And so it actually feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, people go to gather together, but they also go home to like a very independent home to a very independent lifestyle. Each retreat so, to their own castle. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I've felt, um, out of my experience growing up in Texas and, and starting to look at the trajectory of where things could go. Hmm. And that doesn't fit your sense of hospitality and sense of home. Would you want a much more integrated and communal lifestyle that is consistently having hospitality? Yeah. I, I've always seen uh, the idea of a home as like not built for me now, as much as it is like a residence, um, uh, a place where I rest my head at the end of the night, I, I hope to have an open door for, you know, those, those who need a place to stay. I, I hope it's a home that's always hosted and christened with numbers of events. Um, so I, yeah, I, I plan to make my home and, and Anna shares the same vision as, as I do, um, uh, as public as we can, because we both, we love people dearly and don't really feel inconvenienced by them. 
I feel like there's often like this stereotype of Southern hospitality. Where does that, I guess, where does that come from? Where do you see that mark in your own life? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that. So neither of my parents embody Southern hospitality in a traditional sense, um, mainly because all my family grew up in upstate New York. So a lot of their mannerisms and their modus operandi um, really just come out of their own family heritage and background. Um, and so we're, I feel like, um, yeah, Southern hospitality like comes out of is, I think it's as much learned from your environment as it is um, natural to you and, and where you grew up. So um, frankly, I think it has two, two parts of it. One is that um, people actually do uh, care for others. They want them to feel warm. They want them to feel welcome. They want them to feel that um, they have a place in your home and that, uh, yeah, and that they feel special, right? And I think that that's one of the things that overly casual cultures can miss is that when someone enters your home and if you don't have a strong sense of hospitality, they don't truly feel like a, like, like a guest in your home or someone that like is, I guess, like a very important guest. Um, and, uh, but then the other side of it is sometimes Southern hospitality has this bend towards, um, how much can I show you that I am, you oh. know, able to, to provide, um, really flashy things or like, how can I woo you? Um, so I, I've seen both, um, play out. I don't think it's necessarily nefarious. Um, I just like to see it from both, both angles. Yeah, and there's such a stereotype across the U.S. that the Bible Belt plus Texas has a certain mask it wears, where they pretend to be Christian, they pretend to be hospitable, but there's an underbelly of, like, Christians would call it immorality, non-Christians would call it hypocrisy. But would you say that the Christianity and the strong Christian conservative culture of Texas is genuine, or do you think that perhaps politics trumps any um, desire to serve God well? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And this is, Alex, you asked me before, what are some controversial beliefs that I hold? Um, <clears throat> I feel that um, in places that are heavily burdened with cultural Christianity, it's really challenging to separate what's on the surface from what's underneath. Um, but I think we, we all know from the scriptures that like you can see um, or you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears and um, and not just because a tree says it says mm. it's an apple tree, right? Yeah. No, because it bears um, apples as fruit. So um, I, I would say my, my experience in Texas was especially coming to Christ in college. Um, it was really challenging to tease out what was genuine for faith versus what's just cultural Christianity. And I think it's because most people grow up in the church. Most people know the right things. Most people, um, yeah, <clears throat> may not have, um, had as much of a conscious choice as someone who is in a background where it's not the dominant faith and they're actually like choosing Christ. Mm -hmm. Not to say that that's everyone's story. I think many people in Texas, many, percent of believers came to Christ genuinely, but, um, 
Yeah. It's, it's just my it's experience. It's so interesting to me that new believers to the faith generally tend to fall into a pretty, I would say, non-heretical camp of Christianity where it's not extremely legalistic. It's not extremely loosey-goosey. It really seeks to understand and follow God's word as, as well as possible. But people who have been raised Christian oftentimes fall on one or the other sides mm. of that fence, mm-hmm. uh, which I think speaks to the fact that people who are discovering faith for the first time, it's because it's a very genuine experience for them versus people who have been raised as Christians their whole life. It's just something that's that's ingrained in them, and so they're looking to perhaps rebel against that. Mm-hmm. And you were in the latter camp, correct? Or the former camp where you were just coming to Christianity yeah for the first time in college is that right yeah i mean i i grew up going to church i think my family would be categorized as like ceo christians is what we call it um christmas and easter only and uh and that was the only time where i felt like we truly had any sort of worship towards the lord but even then like spiritual practices were not ingrained truly in our family's behavior like none of us would be able to spit off (laughs) any scripture because we weren't spending any time in it and so we were cultural christians that that went to church but i wouldn't say that we necessarily believed growing up and so um i felt like i knew a lot about god but i never come came to know god um until i was a junior in college um and and that that kind of phrase there knowing a lot about god but not knowing god Mm -hmm. was that background helpful or hurtful in your faith journey it was something that um i mean it was just a part of the journey i I, it's hard to say whether it was helpful or hurtful because like god uses all things to like are good and and so having a background gave me enough of a foundation to where when i came to understand him it was almost like this tapestry that was like really spread out and like something that was interwoven and it was just pulled tightly into this like really cohesive story for the first time. Um, almost like a revelation of sorts. And, um, and so for me, that was very helpful to come from a culturally Christian background and also gave me an opportunity to say like, Hey, I've heard this for years. Now this is like resonating with me. Now I can actually like, um, turn around and lift other people into this space rather than like, um, feel like I had to start from ground zero and like, who is God? Who is Jesus? Um, I felt like, yeah, I turned around and started a Bible study. Not, not too far after that. Um, because I wanted to know God and I felt like, um, I, because of having a little bit of a background, it gave me an opportunity to start from somewhere. I feel like that story of not being close to your faith for a long time and perhaps in college, I mean, knowing from what we talked about before, making decisions that Christians wouldn't always approve of, how has Anna reacted to learning about like your past and, and all of your history? I think mm-hmm. now that she's your fiance, I mean, I'm sure you guys have had long conversations about both of your, your pasts. Has she been completely accepting of your your story and your, your mm-hmm. history? I can name off like a million things that I love about Anna. And one of them is just how full of grace that she is. Um, and not in a blind sense, right? Like it, it's not that she just ignores um, the history that I have uh, about certain things. 
Also, um, in case anyone was wondering, this history we're referring to is is murder. Yeah, so, exactly. Chris, you can uh, only only a few, not as <laughs> not as bad as out Paul. Of a prison right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so Anna just accepted so many parts of my past with such grace and recognized um, and, and called out aptly that like, hey, that person that you're describing is not the man who I see today. And so praise God for the transformation that He's done in your life um, to, to bring you out of spiritual darkness and into the light. Um, and, and not just in like such, such like a removed biblical way, but in just such a genuine, like awe of what God has done in and through me Mm -hmm. since I came to Christ. Um, which was really sweet. Now, granted, like (laughs) that doesn't mean that that was last time the conversation happened. Um, we've had a lot of follow-ups on like how that's affected my life since. Yeah. And, and I think in this context for, for listeners, you've been engaged for how long now? Um, let's see a month and four days. So July 7th. You're really keeping immaculate track of this four days and how many hours, Chris? I don't know. Um, (laughs) actually it would probably, no, it would be three days and 23 hours almost (laughs) to the minute because it was at sunset. Considering time zone differences. Yeah. That's considering time zone differences. Um, the fact that Chris knows this is just so consistent with who Chris is and what a romantic he is. Yeah. I love it. I oh love yeah. It. Never entirely. Changed. I was built for it. Yeah. But you've been engaged for a month and three days and 21 plus hours. Um, mm-hmm. that's incredibly exciting and also incredibly daunting. I'm sure marriage is a huge undertaking. Tell us, walk us, walk us through your mind here. How are you feeling? Yeah. So great. Um, I'm ready to be married. What's, What's interesting about uh, a wedding is if you think about it practically, it's the largest party that you will probably ever throw in your life. Um, One that is centered around you of a sense, but also centered around what God has done through you um, and how he's brought two people together. So it's, it's really intricate and really exciting. Um, And yeah, my frame shift has been from, you know, how often can I go to the Burling boys house to what are the next four years of my life going to look like with all the, um, all the different wonderful things that are coming down the road. Yeah. And I, I think in that concept, this is a new season of life. Yeah. What are some things that have really been striking about this new season of engagement? Mm. Exciting. Yeah. Oh, so many exciting things. Cause you or think? even more, maybe oh. more better. Yeah. To interrupt okay. you, but even more better. Even, even more better. Even more better. Even greater. Even greater. Um, what's what's the purpose ultimately of engagement? Oh, yeah. Well, so I I personally believe that the purpose of engagement is to like that it is a it is part of a process towards marriage and it is not a status. Um. So by that, I mean, there's intent behind it, um, that once you get engaged, I, I firmly believe that you should, um, go on to plan, plan a wedding because, um, yeah, you're, you're making the promise publicly, um, through engagement that, Hey, I, I do plan to marry this person and they're important to me. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, um, that the whole purpose of engagement is, is to really, um, close out one chapter and, and enter into another through yeah, thoughtful planning. 
and commitment. It's made the idea of marriage so daunting to me to think that if I'm engaged for nine months to a year, the expectation over that whole time is that it's a big party planning committee, basically, for for a wedding. And the thought of, to your point earlier, that a wedding is a a huge party put on for yourself, that's always terrified me because I don't like being the center of attention. Same. Um, Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then also, what else, to John's point, is specifically is engagement for. I mean, you're not just planning a wedding, you're planning your future life together. Mm-hmm. You're sharing maybe yep. things you haven't shared before. You're going through counseling. There's so oh, yeah. much more to it. At least I'm hoping you'll say there's so much more to it because otherwise yeah. the whole thing terrifies me. Yeah. So, I mean, one, one question is what's it for? It's to prepare you for marriage. What do you do is a different question. That's what you're kind of getting at. And <clears throat> so, yes, you plan a wedding. Um, again, it's the biggest and most expensive party you'll probably ever throw in your lifetime, but it's also really exciting. And as much as people's eyes are going to be on you in those moments, like people really get the chance to enjoy themselves and it's opportunity to, as wedding planners, to make an incredibly special moment for other people too, um, to celebrate their role and to celebrate what Mm -hmm. they've done. And, um, yeah. And to just like, I feel like it's just such a moment of mutual love and respect, um, as two people approach the altar together and, and get united in the eyes of God. Um, so yeah. And what else you do is, um, you plan a honeymoon and one of the most exciting trips that you'll ever take. You go through premarital, premarital counseling, which is the opportunity for someone to hold up a mirror to you to the most important topics and say, look, you two, these are big areas of your life. You need to sort them out um, before you get into into marriage. Have you talked about them? What do you think? Where, yeah, where will you align? What are areas that will continue to grow over time? Um, but it's also a period of just growing in like spiritual and emotional intimacy too. Like it doesn't mean like in all these activities that the way relationship goes by the wayside. Um, we've seen so much growth in our relationship over this time and just like trust and love for each other. So what do you think the biggest Delta is between the two of you that you guys are working through in premarital counseling? Oh, gossip. I'm some, so uh, excited. Yeah. Get some, uh, some spill the tea. Juicy deeds. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, as much as, uh, on the surface, people could look at Anna and I and say like, Oh wow, you two are so similar. Like you have a similar amount of energy. You have a similar amount of this or that. Like we are so different. Um, our risk tolerances are very different. So the way that we think about money is a little bit different. Um, the way that we think about family and independence versus interdependence, um, on our family is, is very different. Um, one of the things like you, you, a family unit or also with your like relatives, uh, relatives. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's true. And, uh, like the actual relationship itself, like how much time that we'll spend with each other. We haven't, I don't know. I don't think we're at loggerheads there, but, um, as it relates to our families, um, it's been an area of conversation for us to be like, Hey, how can we both like show each other love in the way that we're prioritizing each other, like time with each other's family around the holidays. And, um, also just like making time to spend with them. Who are we going to live by? Um, that's, those are big questions to think about in the future. And then how do you, I guess, how do you go about resolving those questions? Well, <clears throat> you have to understand that none of these conversations are going to end in engagement. Um, mm-hmm. her tendencies as a saver and my tendencies as a spender are like 
like not going to be things that are going to be resolved overnight. Um, her dispositions towards her family that she's developed over a lifetime and mine, um, that have changed due to my parents' divorce. Um, uh, yeah, those like will continually be reconciled over time. So I think it's, you have to recognize that like where you're meeting someone at in their journey cannot change overnight. Um, and you have to, and asked me this question right on a flight. She's like, Hey, if nothing changed, would you still like in this area that you're frustrated with me about, like if nothing changed, would you still marry me? Um, and it was, it's such a great question because then it puts it into perspective of like, Hey, you know what? Like neither of us are perfect, right? Like we're, we're in this journey, um, into eternity. So, so I feel like by asking that she's saying, I'm not going to change. No, you're still going to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. So that's how I took it on the flight. And it was, uh, it rattled me up a little, but no, what she meant by that was like, Hey, like I need to know that, um, that you're committed to me, not just because of the things that we agree in, but also in the things that we disagree in. And, Mm. um, even in the things that like might make you frustrated about me, like, I will try to change to like love you, but know that you're also meeting me like at a running pace in a lot of these things. And it's hard to just turn on a dime. Well, Chris, if there's one universal truth we know about marriage, no matter how much you guys fight like cats and dogs, whether you're on the highest mountain or the lowest valley, Mm. you're going to be spending a lot of time together and putting that marriage above a lot of other things. There's only so much time in the day. What gets cut? Not my coffee habits. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's actually been really interesting. And I think, uh, engagement has been a really cool season to start to workshop some of these things. Um, I find myself, especially like in the midst of a busy season, uh, and I guess where I may have a little more slack than Anna making some meals for her and, um, taking care of her in some ways, like what does that come at the expense of, you know, that sometimes I can come at the expense of like spending time with friends or just like, I I feel like most times it's just like getting rid of the margin that we had in our lives that I often waste. So for me, it's actually like what it's gotten rid of is a lot of unproductive habits and it's made, um, the time spent with friends, uh, a lot more communal rather than like individual, which has pros and cons. Um, so yeah, I feel like I feel like it's actually just squeezed me to be more efficient with my time. That way I can better serve and love and, and commit to Anna. I'm glad that this podcast is one of the things that made the cut. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah, there's a, there's a tough cutoff now. I know. I think John and I have felt that too in in terms of efficiency of planning with friends. Because we're, because yeah. we're engaged? Because we're <laughs> engaged to each other. And You're engaged in case in anyone podcast. didn't know, we have an announcement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but... Yeah, there's there's a lot of things to do. John and I have you know side projects now that are not nearly as time intensive as marriage, but there is value in saying, all right, who do we know? Let's invite them all over for a big potluck, right? Totally. Sunday dinner has been great for that too. Yeah, it, I I feel like it's way, uh, it's way easier, and it also starts to build like a lot more cohesion between different parts of life than you running on a bunch of different like individual planes as you would as like a single person going through discovery. Like mm-hmm. once you start to step into marriage, like your identity becomes formed, not just as someone in, like who's married, but in the sense that like, yeah, then you start to prioritize things a little more. And then once you prioritize things, you start to commit to them. And once you commit to them, they become part of your 
identity and like, yeah, in the way that you interact with the world. So, um, again, I think you just <laughs> spend a little less time like in exploratory spaces. Um, I think for better. So that's my, do you have a framework for how you bucket your time for those who are eventually going to be engaged? Fingers crossed mm-hmm. for myself. Yeah. Um, what does that look like if we're trying to be to be Misi about it, to use mm-hmm. a consulting term? So, uh, wait, and for yeah. Misi, for all the non-consulting folks at home, is mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. Thank so you. the idea is that you want to be comprehensive in your response. So um, Alex, to answer your question in the best way that I can, um, the easiest framework is, is this worth losing sleep for? Yes or no? Because for me, I will always say yes as much as I can to things. Um, And so my baseline question is like, I can go without sleep or I feel like I can go without sleep and I can put myself through that for a long period of time. Um, And so it just becomes a game of prioritizing. Like what are the things that I can push later on in the evening? but you're not saying I'll get rid of working out. I'll get rid of this habit that I have that takes 30 minutes a week. I mean, is there anything that's not making the cut? And what are those big buckets of time allocation? Yeah. Right. There's volunteering. There's, there's yeah. your job. I mean, I've, I've kept up with volunteering through big brothers, big sisters. I've um, kept up with like attending and being a part of church and local community. Um, I feel like what I find is that, I spend less time on the fringes of things. So like where whenever I had more time, I'd be like the first to come and the last to leave. Um, now I don't really get to have that disposition as much anymore because I have to be a little bit more efficient with time. Um, so I, I think that's um, how I've been approaching it, but I still like, I don't have any things that would fall into an automatic no category quite yet. Um, but maybe I just haven't set up those automatic no categories. Once the kids start coming, then you have automatic. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think at this point, regular commitments in excess of what I, uh, am already doing. Those are probably going to be a no to a large degree. So like I'm already in like involved in church and small group and like volunteering and those kind of things, like taking on another regular weekly commitment, um, sounds great, but knowing that that also takes takes away from a lot of a lot of other parts in life, that's just not something I'm willing to. Does this mean you're not going to take part in our LARPing club? N- that nor the <laughs> softball league that's spinning up right now. But ah, that's all right. Um, yeah. Does does that make the things that you are committed to more like sweet in that aspect? You know what you are sacrificing for the things that you are committed to. Oh yeah. I mean, then like you look at them through a different lens and it's almost like, I feel like we'll all three of us, Lord willing, we all get married and have kids. Like who knows what God has in store for us. But, um, when you look at the future and think about like your kids, um, to a large degree, like when you're making decisions to prioritize them, then you start to look at them in a lot more of a tender, well, you can, you have an opportunity to look at them in a lot more of a tender light to say, Hey, you know what? Like I put aside this thing and I just want to invest, like I've already made the decision to be with you right now. So like, I want to be here. Like I chose to be here and I'm glad to be here. 
Um, and being the first one to arrive and last to leave doesn't necessarily increase popularity with people. There's almost a scarcity factor where if you're showing up for an hour in an event, people know you care and they know you're busy. And so they don't, they don't feel offended that you can't stay the whole time. It's not like friends will get miffed that you can only come to part of their event. In fact, they'll be honored. Now right? I have a question. Will you ever be busy enough that you Irish exit from a party? This is my the bane of my existence. Because <laughs> I'm for those of you on the podcast that don't know me, I'm a, I'm a natural hugger, and so I have to hug every single person goodbye um, that I know. So it makes the goodbye process as a proportion of time um, exponentially larger when you spend less time at a place, especially um, with John McGee, because as soon as you say goodbye to him, you know, you have about 20 minutes more of him chatting with you before yeah, you can leave. And it's a yeah. great thing. So I, I know that's your most scarce time. And so I'm like, if you're going to treasure <laughs> this above all else, then yeah, uh, that's we're going to utilize that time. I have Irish goodbye a lot more over the last month than I probably ever have in my life. <laughs> that is a tragedy. You know, you mentioned not giving up your coffee habit, however, and I know you have a lot of other habits that perhaps don't take up a lot of time. You're very into wine. You're very into quite a few things, which I learned recently there's a term for that, Epicureanism. Yeah. You told me about this term. I did. You, you you're this perhaps <laughs> the founder of Epicureanism. Would that be a, yeah. a fair statement? Yeah, me and my homie Epicurious from <laughs> 300 BC. Um, yeah, we've been around for a while, but this, but this mentality is near and dear to your heart. Walk us yeah. through it if you would. Yeah. I, so if you were to look at Epicureanism on the surface, it like almost looks like hedonism or like just pursuing, uh, luxuries or like ephemeral pleasures. I think it's a lot more than that. I think, um, actually like being more precise um, about what your interests are, um, allows you to be, um, yeah, to have a greater appreciation for like what you're engaged in. So for example, like if I'm making, like if I'm making a meal and I'm investing the time to like make a meal that has thoughtfulness behind it. And like, I know the story or I know the combinations of what goes into that meal. And it's something that's special that has a lot of like labor and time intensity to it. Like I'm going to enjoy it a lot more than if I just like go pick up a pizza from the store. Right. So I, for me, I think, um, it's like, I've seen Epicureanism play out in my life of like making the ordinary a lot more special. Refined hedonism. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Refined hedonism. Well, even as we were talking about preparing for this topic, my mind immediately went to Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah. Which I mean, Like Epicurean? Epicurean Ecclesiastes. I don't know. Maybe they're alliterative. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, huge fan of those E's, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it... Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know who it's written by now that I think about it. Yeah. But the Ecclesiast? The, the author <laughs> of the teacher. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. It could be the, Solomon. The teacher talks like, go eat your food with gladness and drink yeah. your wine with a joyful heart. For yeah. God has already approved what you do. Um, you know, whatever you your hands finds to do, do with all your might. From the, yeah. um, and I think there's just what you're saying, kind of along the lines of that, like God's given us so much hmm. food to enjoy toil to enjoy on earth mm -hmm. um, an epicurean would agree yeah 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I honestly, whenever you brought up Ecclesiastes, I was like, all right, I'm going to get a lecture from John and like <laughs> vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. I was going to say, what, yeah, one of you two is about to do uh, that. Um, yeah, no, I I mean, I, I totally agree. And I think um, one of the it's like for me, it's just like how in in just very thoughtful ways, like how can you prioritize getting to like understand the full weight of the thing that you're like taking in um so even if it's like drinking a cup of coffee in the morning like if i know it's coming from ethiopia like cool i want to learn about ethiopia and they're like okay how do i understand more about this flavor profile what do i like about it like and then you start to say like oh man well i just like have really come to appreciate like this particularity of like coffee and that translates into other different domains and so um, I don't, I don't feel like it necessarily has made me stingy to where I turn my nose up at things, but it makes me appreciate you turn, like you turned your nose up to my wine offer tonight. Um, well, I couldn't tell if it were <laughs> bright red wine vinegar at this point or if it was still red wine. That's true. Uh, so I had a whiskey that doesn't expire. Well, um, and you mentioned this, like knowing about things, is there any category of enjoyment of food? drink everything in between that really hasn't caught your fancy oh uh that's so you're saying out of the consumables i guess um i would say like that you could be epicurious about yeah i would say like craft beer you know like i've got a lot of buddies who are just like super obsessed with beers and they you know love their sours or they love their i don't know belgian tripels and i just like I do, I like a good IPA. I like some nuances of beer, but like, I don't get into it all that much. And so, yeah. I, I wonder if there's a genetic predisposition though some people have to Epicureanism. Because in general, I can't taste the subtleties in wine. I can't taste the subtleties in, in coffee. I do not curate things as much, except for perhaps Spotify playlists. And some Ooh, people wait, seem... Wait, hold on. I want to pause you right there. Think about that idea of Epicurean and curate. Do you yes. think that those have a link? I think that... Well, that absolutely. Actually, that would be very Let's go into the Greek, uh, Greek root. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, there's the okay. site. There's the or food like site Epicurious, right? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I bet, I they're, I, yeah. I bet oh, they're all linked. Okay, continue. Um, well, now, now I've lost my train of thought. I think I was saying something... No, to the, so nature versus nurture. Yeah, something to the effect of like some people love dialing into one thing very deeply mm. and some people like to take broad strokes yeah. across many issues it sounds like you are a, a deep diver kind of guy yeah um i would say john is on his computer right now by the way looking at the etymology of the word um, epicure if you're wondering it meant disciple of epicurus ah interesting yeah yeah like christian versus like Christ. I, yeah. I am I'm trying to figure um, out if like curious yeah. stems from that in some way. But Anyways, I'll, yeah. I'll report we'll, back if I yeah. Okay, we'll we'll attach it to the the podcast notes for the session. Um so the nature versus nurture question, Alex. I think so one as it relates to like being able to taste, smell things, those kind of things. Like um I actually read a book. It's called Cork Dork. It's a wonderful book. And a lot of the science says like you can train your palate to be able to like taste the nuances and subtleties of things like that is not like there are no like true super tasters as much as people like to claim that they can taste like cardamom or whatever like 
on their first bit. I think it's just like you learn it through like sensory adaptation over time. It's like you learn in the same way that like you learn smells uh, and tastes in the same way that you would be able to learn words. It's, I think it's all about synaptic connections and like continuing to reinforce those over time. Um, So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a nature thing. Now I think what it, or yeah, I don't think it's a nature thing. What I do think is um, more nature is like how people like, uh, mm, I'm trying to think about this. Um, how they prioritize things based on their like giftings or whatever else. Like, because I think there's a part of that that's like, if someone truly like did not have like innate value towards like, or ascribed an innate value towards a particular thing, they're not going to invest in it. And so I think there's a nature aspect of it to say like, I'm not like predisposed to like care about these kind of things or I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to draw this like, yeah. Line into, into how it is. I I think that makes complete sense. And I think that would tie to perhaps some Christians initial concerns with Epicureanism and its ties to hedonism to say, well, the priority shouldn't be food and drink. It should not be about what you eat and drink. Right. It should be about serving others and, we don't want to have too much of a focus on the material. How yeah. would you respond to such hypothetical naysayers? Yeah. <laughs> such as yourself. No, I'm kidding. No, uh, I, I, I'm really no. into this. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think it's, it's that idea of like, can you serve others in a way that makes them feel special? Like in the same way that like Christ would like elevate people with low status how can you treat someone that like hasn't experienced something special before to something special to like introduce them to something that they like they haven't gotten to have and like make them food that is incredibly delicious or make them a coffee that like blows their mind you know like so John, I, I think, I that, think what Chris I, is telling us is he's he makes meals for us because we're low social status no no no, no. <laughs> but I, I think it for me like when it uh like it's an indicator of like how much I value other people by like, or at least in, in my case, I feel like it's an indicator. Like if I'm willing to put in the time to like make a special meal or make a special coffee or like get a wine, that's like, I feel like you would particularly like, because you know, I know that you like X, Y, and Z things like you like things smoky and maybe a little more full, whatever. Um, like that shows that I know you and that shows that I'm like, that I listen to you and that I care for you in that way. So we, we've really come full circle back to hospitality. Yeah. Oh, Southern hospitality. He is a Texan boy. <laughs> and with <laughs> that, <laughs> with that horrible Southern We're going back. <laughs> Are we going back to Texas? Uh, no, we oh. are actually going to um, close up the podcast here. Um, this was this a special a and delicious time. Uh, yeah. in, in the words of Epic, an Epicurean, I'm sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there who's like a podcast Epicurean. They like, um, I wonder what they would, how they would taste they, that podcast. Yeah, maybe they... they <laughs> what does it smell yeah. like? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, Chris, we... This is a, a zinger here, a surprise question. Okay. Every... And if you would listened to previous podcast episodes, you would know this. We have every individual get on the soapbox for 30 seconds. Just something random that they want the world to know for 30 seconds. 
Some, so it's actually interesting. So the way that Tim Ferriss does this on his podcast was if you could have a billboard that said anything, what would it say? Well, ours is a soapbox. We're, we're not Tim Ferriss. I, I know. But I kind of like that, though. Can we appropriate that? <laughs> I mean, maybe you can just ask Tim it's, Ferriss. It's copyrighted. And that's, I've actually, and like that's Chris's soapbox, everyone. <laughs> Tim <laughs> Ferriss has a soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good night. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, Chris. Huh? I know the bill will just if say, I, I love Anna. I'm excited to marry her. I mean, Anything to add to that? Or was that a bingo, good summary? Yahtzee, that's pretty awesome. Um, um, Alex and John are also pretty great, you know, in the, in the small print <laughs> at the bottom. In the subtext. Yeah. 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 That's all. John is the about. reason that Anna and I are engaged. Oh, I, I did not bring this yeah, up earlier, we, guys. We, we I'm going to get on my there. soapbox <laughs> this time. Uh, I actually introduced um, Anna and Chris to each other. Mm-hmm. And now they're about to get married. Yeah. And you took our engagement photos. And yeah, you've, you've been there for a lot of special moments, John. Dare I say that? Yeah, you were there the first time we did a Sunday dinner. Sounds like at the wedding, someone's going to need to give up, get up and give a speech about Chris and John. Yeah. And and their love of happening. Well, I I did suggest, I'm sorry, this is literally my soapbox. This is, this is, this is how it is when you're trying to leave a party and John's there. He just keeps talking. Yes. Continue, John. Um, Chris, you and I spent a wonderful like July day last year, just spending 24 hours within six feet of one another. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. And I know that due to Anna, I'll, I'll blame it on her. That, yeah. That will was, never happen again. I mean, my my heart was broken at the time, but it is now mended one mm. year later. And with that, maybe we can save the, the story for how the heart was broken for the next time you're on. Uh, because you'll be back again soon, I hope. Yeah. Sounds good. I've got some ideas. Perfect. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed and we'll see you again next week. Uh-huh.